Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. In Dan Partland's new documentary film, Unfit, The Psychology of Donald Trump, he poses the question. Is Donald Trump fit to hold the office of President of the United States? Unfit provides an eye-opening analysis of the behavior, psyche, condition, and stability of Donald Trump. It takes a sociological look at the electorate that chose him and the collective effect he is having on our culture and institutions. During the 2016 campaign, mental health professionals felt policy-bound from speaking publicly. Now, after years of observation, for the first time ever, they have decided enough is enough. The film, again, is called Unfit, the Psychology of Donald Trump, and we're joined today by the director, Daniel Partland. Daniel Partland, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you for having me. So glad you did this. I'm not a psychologist, nor do I play one on TV, but I think that fairly early on, it was obvious to me that the man is not stable. He's unfit. He's manifestly unfit. What, what prompted you to go out and, and gather together all of these people to talk about why Donald Trump is unfit? Uh, it just as you said, I think in, uh, in the early years of the Trump presidency, uh, uh, you know, we were all watching too much news. I mean, everybody everywhere consuming news like crazy. There was so much of it, so many norms being broken, so many unusual things, so many scandals of different kind. And it felt like the news was bouncing from one issue set to the next, to the next, to the next, but wasn't common. It felt like there was a big hole in the coverage. They weren't commenting on the sameness that seemed to be framing all of these different crises. And so we tried to really drill down. How do you offer some more perspective? Because even though this one is about the border you know, and and this one is about uh, tax policy or environmental policy, there seems like there's a sameness to these. And the sameness turns out to be that they're driven by Donald Trump's psychology itself. And so we started to talk to mental health professionals, a lot of them who had written really uh, astute academic uh, papers on what they were seeing going on. And we found a much more interesting story. We found a story that wasn't just about Uh, the need, in a sense, for Americans to get a little bit of psychological literacy in order to just understand what's happening in our politics, Um, but also um, a very interesting story about how and why um, mental health professionals were really prohibited from speaking about what they were seeing in the run-up to the 2016 election, which I think is scandalous in, in itself, because we really believe that American elections, presidential elections, are really rigorous vetting processes. And we, God, we do so much. And and there was this one important constituency that really wasn't heard from, and the film tries to give them a voice before this next election. And I think in some ways you're referring to something that I'd heard when people were talking about Trump's psyche, Trump's mental stability, and uh, called the Goldwater Rule. Let's talk a little bit about where it came from and what it is. Yeah, well, the Goldwater Rule is a ethical guideline set out by the APA, the American Psychiatric Association. Um, And it refers to a a scandal that happened during the 1964 election where 
Barry Goldwater was running for president, and Fact Magazine published an article that listed, you know, that quoted from 1,100 mental health professionals who were saying that they believed that Barry Goldwater was not stable. And this was a big scandal because most of them were commenting on things that they really had no uh, good perspective to comment on. They were commenting on his inner life, his inner psyche, what he thought about his mother and his parents. An era of um, psychiatry that was still mostly focused on Freudian analysis. And the truth is that those, those mental health professionals made a fool of themselves by speculating on things they knew nothing about, because you really need to have seen the patient clinically to understand that level of their inner psyche. The difference between that and what's happening today is that what the psychiatrists and psychologists in the film are commenting on is about observable behavior. Our new diagnostic uh, paradigm for understanding behavioral disorders right. is, is through observation, not through the probing of someone's inner psyche. And so when they, look, I think it's a, it's a worthy cause. The, the, the Goldwater Rule sought to do two very important things. One is to keep from politicizing mental health. And I think that's really, really important. Um, <clears throat> Many of us have mental health diagnoses. They are not disqualifying for doing any number of jobs. We, we always want to make sure to say that because uh, the history of stigma for mental health diagnoses is significant and, and, and not really appropriate. We have to have a, a finer, more attuned sense of what those are and where they apply and where they're relevant and where they really aren't. Um, Donald Trump's mental health diagnosis is not consistent with his job. And the film goes into great detail about that. But, um, but the other important thing uh, that the Goldwater Rule set out was the, to reinforce the idea of patient confidentiality. And so what they said was, you can't comment on a patient who you haven't seen in the clinical setting. But any patient that you have seen in a political setting, you can't comment on because you have a bind of confidentiality for that patient. So effectively, yeah. Yeah. they removed any discussion of Trump's psyche, Trump's mental health, let's just say, um, from, the, uh, from the public discourse. Yeah. Yeah, and in fact, uh, I think it's Dr. Is it Dr. Gartner who uh, talks about how he's actually been able to, he feels more, confident in his diagnosis because of his of because of the observational nature of the job that Donald Trump is in that he, right. he if it reinforces whatever he's putting forward as as a psychological analysis because he is able to observe him in more situations than a, a patient coming into an office and sitting in a chair would be would be able to manifest is that yes. is it yeah. Absolutely. Dr. John Gardner is one of the principal interviews in the film and really makes the point, I think, rather effectively that, yes, when you see a patient in a clinical setting, you're, you know, they're, they're sitting on the couch opposite you and they're giving their perspective on, on how they, you know, how they experience things. And the mental health professional is left to sort of interpolate what the behavior must have been because it's all self-reported. 
Right. But in the case of Donald Trump, we actually have something that's much more effective, which is we have the ability to observe the behavior from the outside. And the behavior is the behavior. You know, I mean, <laughs> what he tweets is what he tweets. What he says, what we see him doing on stage is the behavior. So there's no layer of translation of needing to read between the lines of, between what a patient is reporting to you. You're actually seeing it for real and can diagnose uh, based on that. I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Dan Partland, and he is the director of the film Unfit, The Psychology of Donald Trump. And you can go to unfitfilm.com to find out more about how you can watch the film, watch and, and, and more descriptions about a leader of the free world who has access to several thousand nuclear weapons, uh, who is, in my opinion, mentally unstable. Tell me a little bit about gathering of the people that you have in the film what, what was how did you go about that would you start it's very important to say that the film is nonpartisan, and a lot of people don't understand that but you know there's no discussion of policy you know the film is decidedly anti-trump i would have to say but it's still nonpartisan. we we interviewed three categories of people um mental health professionals we asked them only questions about uh, mental health, not about their political uh, points of view. We interviewed historians, we asked them questions about history, not about their political point of views. But all of the partisans, all of the political people who we interviewed for the film are all um, lifelong Republicans. Some of them aren't Republican anymore. But it was very important to not just have uh, prominent um, political voices, but to have them all, every one of them really, be a prominent a Republican or conservative voice. I mean, obviously, you know, Bill Crystal is in this film and is is one of the, you know, one one of the keepers of the flame for conservative and uh, for conservatism as a intellectual and ideological pursuit. It's very clear that the the arguments that they make, none of them really make political arguments. They right. they make arguments about moral and, you know, intellectual and to some extent psychological capacity. I live in a household where my dad watches Fox News a lot, okay? And when Donald Trump appeared on the horizon, certainly as a viable, when he became a viable candidate to be president of the United States, I said something to him that I think should resonate with everyone, and that is, you and I can disagree about tax policy, immigration, civil rights issues, but let's agree that this particular person that is carrying the water that you think is so, he described him, Donald Trump, as the best president of his lifetime. This is a 91-year-old man who lived through World War II. And, and I just said, Dad, let's just, can we agree to disagree on policy, but agree that this man is just not right? He's not capable of the job he's been given. And I don't think, it, I don't think he heard it. Look, I think uh, that's a really important thing. And I think everybody in America who has uh, some kind of feeling like that, of that disconnect with family. And the film really tries to get insight into that because, I mean, there were times when I felt like, you know, psychological literacy may be the main thing. And I, I don't mean education. I think some people are very good at reading psychology and, and some people need to need to be kind of hip to it, it to understand a little bit. But, you know, the people who love Trump, they see like a great, strong leader. Yes. And 
to me that that's jaw dropping because I see a guy who's like a mess. I see a guy who's a bundle of insecurities, who who has terribly low self-esteem and is endlessly trying to pump himself up. And so, you know, yes, what he is working with all of his might to project as a strong and powerful leader. But what do you see? You know, what do you see with a guy who is so um, so fragile? That's what people are like, oh, no, he is, he's, he's got a tough skin. He has such a tough skin. He's taking it from all sides. He's got a fragile psyche, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and so I do think, you know, we tried to put out some, a paradigm. We tried to put out tools and framework for audience to understand it. But decidedly, the film is not, aimed at your father, I don't think. I mean, it's, 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 people will, you know, critique the film and say it preaches the converted. That's not exactly true. I mean, it preaches for sure. And it preaches to anyone who will listen. But what it's aimed at is two things. One is changing the discussion for the people who are already Trump critics, but giving them some better tools for talking about what the big problem is here, because the big problem is not Donald Trump. Yes, he, he's, he's what, he, he needs to be defeated, but there's something much larger going on in the society that is what made him grow, and that's the real problem that we have to get our head around. You are absolutely right. He is a manifestation of the last 50 years of political upheaval in the United States. He's a manifestation of resentment and a manifestation of uh, a sense that America, as my father knows it, is slipping away somehow, some way. It is not the America that he grew up in. And I'm going to say something. You don't have to agree with me. I'm not going to, I don't want to take you down a road you don't want to go. But I think really at the end of the day, and I'm not saying this about everyone who supports Trump, because there are, there are a variety of reasons. But for a lot of them, he is the manifestation of a racist cultural bias and also a loss of, let's be honest, a loss of American empire. That is, we're in the midst of some decline in American power around the world. And you couple that with a, a demographic shift in this country that is happening very quickly. And I think there, I, I think that his calling card, his his brand, is racism. And I, you don't have to agree with me. I don't expect you to. But I'm just saying this is just my feeling about it. Uh, look, I, I think all that is very well said. I think, you know, my family members and good friends of mine who are big believers in Trump, they of course don't believe that it's racism. They don't, that's not what they're voting for. And I I sincerely think that that is not, that is not their intention. But I think just the same way we have to get a little more sophisticated in understanding psychology and reading psychology of people, we have to get a little more sophisticated in understanding uh, systemic racism and and unconscious bias. And, and, you know, the, the unconscious bias that, you know, try as we may to like, we're, we're frustrated that America is changing and that it doesn't look and feel like it did. And it's very hard, I think, to parse that from the issue of the demographic change. You know, when people who look different and act different and have different skin color, and that's only, you know, there's a cultural, there's a cultural war going on 
as well. But when people who, are, who feel different than you are starting to feel like they, they, they represent a larger and larger portion of the population, right. um, you feel threatened. Right. The, the world that you wanted it to be, the way you loved it, is changing, and you feel threatened. And it very easily conflates with, uh, with a sort of racist, unconscious bias that those people who are different are ch- taking the world down a road that I don't like. Right. And I'm going to throw in one other element into that conversation, and that is my dad, and God bless him, he served in Korea. He's a good man. All the, I, I don't, you know, this sounds very disparaging. But I look at him as, a, as someone who grew up in an era of incredible prosperity. The, the United States coming out of World War II was a superpower, the likes of which the world has never known before and never since, maybe, or ever will be. The, we, the, uh, we, stood, we stood literally astride the entire world, and we could project power anywhere we wanted. But he also was a beneficiary of the GI Bill, all of the different programs that at first for people who were in the, grew up in the 50s who were trying to make a living in the 50s, it was an incredible time to grow up. Unfettered wealth for the United States and power beyond, beyond reason. And you look at that as the pinnacle of American society, American culture, American history. It's easy to look now and say, well, we're part of a very multi- polar world where all kinds of people have a, a power and interest and all of these things and we're no longer that. So it's easy for me to say it's tied up in that. And I also grew up with uncles who were policemen, who were racists, and but who were great people. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just know I know, and then, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I feel like I've hijacked our conversation here a little bit, no. but I just feel like these are things that are happening and it, the fact that America is not what it was in 1959 is, I'm sure, eternally troubling to the people who grew up during that period of time. It's much easier to have cohesion the more homogenous the culture is, and you know, and we're seeing that around the globe. Like the, the you know, there, there's a lot of demographic shifts. Immigration is happening. It's moving. It's easier to move around the globe, and everybody is changing. Um, but yeah, as as multiculturalism becomes the norm and not just the thing that we aspire to. I mean, the America of the 1950s and 60s that was so prosperous had a had a real strong ethic of uh, assimilation. That is, you know, there were always those who who didn't. But that was like what it was to be an American is to join the American culture, and that meant, you know, that meant the World Series and Super Bowl and you know everything else. And now you go up and down the street in any, you know, city in America, small towns are maybe a little different. And you don't have that experience where on the night of the World Series, you go to the checkout line in the supermarket, everybody's like, who are you rooting for tonight? Like, people right. don't even know that it's happening. The culture is very diverse. People, This guy is going to an art opening. This guy's going to, you know, a music thing. This one's more interested in football, whatever. You know, that they're, they're, it's not that world anymore where we're all tied in this shared experience there were three networks dan there were three networks three networks yeah it's you know so the but what the film tries to sort of look at with this is that we have to i think the way we've been teaching history is wrong we 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 have taught that there are these moments of crisis in history and humanity has come together and defeated them and now we're past that. We're enlightened. World War II, that's over. World domination, racism, you know, Nazism. 
these things are not gone. No. And they come back really quickly. And when you look at, you know, there have always been guys like Trump. The question is, why at this moment in history was the ground soft for him and his movement to happen? And, you know, when we look at interwar Europe, it's easy to draw the analogy. What happens, and we see it again and again, you can look at it anywhere, is when there are big forces destabilizing a culture, it it does something to the humans that makes them so much more susceptible to the allure of an authoritarian. I agree. I agree. And right now we've got, look, the pandemic people are saying works against Trump. I think there are ways that psychologically it works for Trump because yeah. people who are frightened do tend to want the authoritarian. Maybe that guy will just fix it. He alone can. We've, but quite aside from that massive, uh, demographic shifts, shifts around the globe, an impending environmental apocalypse. We're still feeling on some levels, there's the ring out of the, of the 2009 uh, meltdown, a feeling of terrorism, uh, you know, destabilizing the world order. Yeah. There's no counter, you know, the, the, we didn't realize how much the, the dual powers of the United States and the Soviet Union, the Cold War actually gave it shape. Now there's no shape. And uh, the world is destabilized. And social media has become a massive destabilizing thing. We thought when it came on the scene, oh my God, this fantastic new democratizing tool. Everyone is a publisher. Well, now everyone is a publisher. And no one knows what, what is true because there's so many things being published that are not, you know, everybody has a voice. It's hard to weed through it. I mean, so I think that each time there's a, you know, there's a calamitous moment in world history, it's a little different. But we do see that there are tendencies that are really about human nature yeah. to retrench with your own kind and to um, follow the, 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 the strong authoritarian leader who is gonna get us through this when we're feeling frightened and destabilized. And I think that's what's happening now. And I think we have to teach that as part of the nature of human beings and not an outlier events that happen every so often. It's in us and it's happening now. I agree with you. I, and I think that one of the things that you just mentioned is actually still viable as an opportunity to bring some sanity to our world, which is the, yes, the uh, social media has been destabilizing and it has been polluted almost beyond recognition. But there also is this whole generation of people who are growing up who, if you tell them a lie, all they have to do is get on their phone and go to a reliable place and, and know it's a lie. We also have the ability to, going back, I just uh, interviewed a documentary filmmaker about the great march uh, prior to the start of the war in Iraq, February 15th, right, 2003, the largest gathering of human beings in the history of the world, 30 million people gathered around the world to protest a war before it started. That gives me some hope and yeah. in, in moving forward. And so when I see unfit, the psychology of Donald Trump, th these are the kinds of things that when, when you have information and you hope, and I hope for you and I hope for America, that people at least watch it. 
at least check it out. Um, you know, put down um, RuPaul Drag Race for for a half for for a couple of episodes and watch this because this is what's happening. He is real. What I've been saying about him, he could not have come along at a worse time because the climate impending disaster was happening. And now it's we're seeing California as not only just the canary in the coal mine. We are in the coal mine and there's there's a there's a slide happening right behind us. And so we are he and the fact that he's been deregulating all of these industries at a time when you could not even it's hard to imagine. So I hope I have hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I have hope in uh I, I have hope in the Americans. I think Americans are um, are good and decent people. I think that 60 million people who voted for Donald Trump the last time around. I think you know those are good and decent people too. I wish that there that more of them saw um, how much he has really failed the the agenda that they wanted, um, even though it wasn't my agenda. Um, but I really don't think this election is about agendas. I think that what I, I hope for America is that they will just take a step back and make a vote for um, decency yeah. and the rule of law yeah. and have confidence that that way is always going to be the best way. Yeah, you know, I, uh, you're absolutely right. I, I, yes, just on a human level. And again, that's what my argument to my dad was. Look. We can disagree on tax policy and environmental laws, but look at this man and watch him for, I have, how many press conferences have you watched with him where after about 10 minutes, it turns into the most bizarre, disconnected, disjointed stream of consciousness that is coming from the most powerful man on the planet. I, I, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how anyone can watch that and not think, well, he should be president again. You know, I mean, of course. And I, I just, I think that uh, there are people who just love him very deeply and they've, they've turned off their analytical skills. And then I think there's just a lot of people who, you know, the, the world, the, the, the culture is very polarized and they don't even like him, but they like Republicanism. Yeah, and I think our political stripes have become more akin to our religion. I think with so few things holding the society together, you know what we're talking about. Like whether you go when you go to the supermarket, nobody knows if the World Series is on or the Super Bowl or the art opening. The only thing that we still all know, the only thing that is binding us right now, is the freaking election. Right, the, the political calendar is the remaining, you know, universal cultural thing that we share. And so, of course, it, yeah. that's where the battle lines are drawn. The frightening thing that I remember hearing this, and it scared me, and that is Donald Trump was the first pre presidential candidate in the history of America where 100% of the people in the country knew who he was. Yeah, yeah. 100% of the country knows who Donald Trump is. Yeah. That's unbelievable. And it says a lot about what you're saying. And I do think there's one other element. There's a whole ecosystem of information that my dad is getting that is, yeah. it is so polluted and so effective. That's the thing that scares me when I watch uh, uh, Fox News is how effective it is. I'm sitting there. I know my, this side of my brain's going, this is a complete 
crazy. But the other side of my brain is, wow, this is entertaining as hell. Yeah. This is, and this is telling me, I've, I've described Donald Trump in the past as America's id. Hmm. He's America's id. He's hmm. all the unfiltered, all the unfiltered nonsense that people in the darkest moments of their life wanted to get away with. Hmm. Donald Trump is the manifestation of that. Yeah. He is. Those two things are very powerful. And I agree with what, what, you know, basically, but I think people are opening their eyes to the fact that he, he's, he's not right. That he's, he just, and he, plus he can't do the job. That's the other thing. He just can't. The history of, a, of autocrats um, is, and I think Trump fits into it really perfectly, is that um, they fail because they're incompetent at governance. And, and that's really what we're already, we've seen quite vividly, is that his real skill set and what he's good at, and you know, I, I, you, you give him credit for it, whether, you, whether it's instinctual or whether it's by design, it doesn't really matter, he gets credit for it. What he's really good at is wielding power. Yes. He's very effective at wielding power, but that is different than being effective at governance. And he's completely incompetent at governance. And so even that, that, that's where I, I wish that some Trump supporters would hold them to account. But the phenomenon of what, what happens with, with making a bond with an autocrat is that he is, you're responding to him emotionally. Yeah. He is saying the thing that feels very good to believe about, let's just ban all Muslims from the country to stop this madness. Let's, you know, Mexicans are rapists, all this stuff that like, just, it's, it's a release. It's, it, that's what it feels like. It does, doesn't stand up to your analytical skills if you look at it about how many are this or how many are that, but it does rhyme with something you're feeling emotionally. So they've made a bond with him. And as the, the great uh, scholar in the film, Ruth Ben-Ghiat says, they no longer, supporters, once they've made this bond, they no longer have to believe him because they believe in him. Right. And it's a way that people let go of the responsibility right. to figure these things out on their own because we know he's our guy and we trust him and just go with what he's saying. Right. That's what people are doing. Yeah, I, this is the last thing, and I so appreciate this discussion. It's, I feel like I'm in a therapy session for my, my own <laughs> self right now. But, uh, and that is, he is the extreme of Republican, the Republican Party for the last 30 years, which is they're not interested in governance. They don't like to govern. They're great at acquiring power. They are absolutely masterful at gaming the system and acquiring power. They're horrible as, govern, as, as a governing body. They're horrible. They don't want to do it because their constituency is not American, the mass of the American people. Their constituency is, is the elite. And I, I'm sorry, I sound Look, like somebody I would, out of I would, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I would take that in a little different direction. I mean, their constituency, they, they yeah. have different constituencies. Definitely, you're right. You're right. But there's a, a lot of uh, working class Americans. You're right. No, you're right. Moved far right in recent years. The thing that I would say about that is, is I think that conservatism as an ideology is, uh, is a, a reasonable ideology. That it's, yes. it's good to liberalism, conservatism. I like seeing them some battle it out. I think that, in a sense, conservatism has been so successful. Um, they've, they've just succeeded rhetorically on, on a fantastic level, but they've become so successful that they've become a perversion of, of yeah. themselves. I mean, there's yeah. no further, like, they won. 
They, they accomplished, it happened, you know, let's just say broad strokes American history from FDR until LBJ is a solid period of rising liberalism. Right. From Nixon through Reagan, really George W. Bush. Reagan was high, really, yeah. Reagan, but I mean, I think conservative, you know, we, when George W. Bush came in office, they were talking about a permanent Republican majority. Right. Um, and you could look at the Carter presidency and the Clinton presidency as aberrations because really the country overall was moving right throughout the, the period. But I think at some point in the George W. Bush presidency, I really think conservatism had accomplished all of its central goals and was reaching for more, reaching kind of beyond for more extreme versions of itself. Um, and I think at this point has become a, a perversion of the conservative ideal because you can't, I mean, again, it's, let's just go back to tax cuts as a thing that is the, that's central to the ideology. Like I'm for responsible government. I'm for prudence and managing money, fiscal responsibility, but tax cuts can't be the answer for, for everything. I mean, they're the answer when we, when our, when the economy is bad, cut taxes because that'll help loosen the economy. When the economy is good, cut taxes because that'll, we'll, you know, that'll, we don't need it anymore because now we're doing good. And, it really it has ended up that they've become so anti-government that it's really hard to entrust someone who doesn't believe in what government is capable of doing with the role of governing. That's exactly, sort of talk about a manifestation of a psychological condition. Why would you put somebody in charge of something that it, who have expressed a desired interest to get rid of it? Yeah. That's crazy. Why do you keep doing that, America? Why do you keep putting people in charge of government who don't believe in government? And to me, that's, <laughs> that's, that's he, it. I'm saying he's an exaggeration of all of this stuff. Yeah. But I, and you're right to correct me on that because the evangelicals, look, this is the other side of this argument. And that is Trump has been wildly successful. He's a 90% rating with the, with the base of the Republican Party. 90% of these people think that he's my dad, the greatest president of his lifetime. And what they're saying is he's given them a, a, a judiciary that's very radically right. He has, he has promoted all kinds of policies that uh, deregulation of industry. Uh, in their minds, he is batting a thousand. He has done all of the things that they wanted. So when people say he hasn't done anything, no, in fact, just the opposite. George Bush never would have gone down this road. George W. would never have done all these things. Dick Cheney wouldn't even have gone down this road. But, Bond, but Donald Trump had made a pact with the evangelicals that he was all in, and they have embraced him. And uh, anyway, I could go on and on. I feel like this has been an amazing conversation for me, Dan. Uh, you're really serious. I'm, I, you can send me a bill if you want. Um, and I really, really appreciate it. The movie, by the way, is fantastic. Thank Wonderful you. distillation of all the things that we're talking about. All of these things that we're talking about in some manner of speaking are in the film. And, and it's good to see it for people who love the visual arts, which I do, to be able to sit down in about, and in about 90 minutes be able to say, all right, I get it. I understand why all of these people feel the way they do, and it makes sense. It does. Thank you. <laughs> the film, again, is Unfit, The Psychology of Donald Trump. Go to un, 
fitfilm.com to find out where it is, where it's playing. It's in virtual theaters. It's been, it's been held over. It's doing really well. It's number one on a number of platforms. It's Tell number some- one on iTunes. I mean, it, it, uh, that's the easiest metric to access, but it's doing great. It's available on 17 platforms, including iTunes and Amazon and Voodoo and Fandango and Google Play. It's on cable and cable and satellite carriers as well. We wanted to make it very accessible. And like you're saying, for everything else, like it's dense, heady political stuff, but we really, the film is very accessible. We tried to make it, it's a, it's a fast, quick view. It's not going to be medicine. It's not going to take, you know, a lot of oh, people no. think documentaries. It's going to, it's going to, it's going to take you on this ride and I think share some insights and I think you'll, you'll come out feeling uh, like you got a little something for your entertainment time. By the way, is the Donald or anyone close to him commented on the film? Has he put out a tweet on you guys or just? He has not. Of course, I would love it if he did. I'm hoping <laughs> that day will come. Uh, we did some advertising on Fox News um, and, uh, and we, know he, we know he's tracking our Twitter feed. He accidentally retweeted one of our tweets uh, recently, but uh, we'll see. We'll see what he, what he thinks of it or if he's driven to comment. It's a tough thing to comment on. Higher praise I couldn't think of than Donald retweeting some of your stuff. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so very much, Dan Partlin. I I thank you for indulging me. I thank you for the film on Fit, The Psychology of Donald Trump. And please come back anytime you want. So that'd be great. Thank you, Dan. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Thank you.